and welcome to the latest episode of Five Rings to Rule Them All. I'm Sid Ziegler, and this week I'm joined by the very first Paralympian I ever met, Stephanie Wheeler. I remember when I first met Stephanie, who is in a wheelchair, not really understanding what disability was and having no concept on earth about adaptive sports or the Paralympics. And through talking with Stephanie and listening to Stephanie and watching Stephanie uh, play wheelchair basketball, uh, I, I got a, a, a sense of this person who was so much more than the wheelchair that I had put her in. And ever since meeting Stephanie and getting to know Stephanie, my perspective of people who are disabled has changed. And I do my best to to try to elevate her story and the stories of others. And so it's, it, it's an absolute pleasure to have Stephanie join us, who is a multi-time, multi-time Paralympian, who is in the Wheelchair Basketball Hall of Fame, who is a respected wheelchair basketball coach at the University of Illinois, and who over the years has been a really lovely, wonderful friend. Well, I hope you enjoy my conversation with with Stephanie Wheeler. Well, I'm thrilled now to be joined by Stephanie Wheeler. And Stephanie, you wrote a piece for us in Fro Go Athletes a few years ago, and, and you had a line in there that always stuck with me and I think helped help change my perspective of adaptive sports and people with disability. You wrote, my disability became a non-factor in my life. I have been successful because of it, not despite it. Tell me more about that line and, and, and why you wrote that. Um, That's a great question. Um, You know, I think when I think back on that and, and just that line and how, my experiences have been shaped by my disability. I think for me, what that means is that, um, you know, there's, there's so much uh, in society that tells anyone that's different that they don't belong. And especially in sport, when um, just the nature of what sport is, is defined by your body, right? Like what your body looks like, what your body can do, how physical it can be. And for me, the moment I found disability sport and the moment I found wheelchair basketball, um, I wasn't seen as something different or someone different. Um, I wasn't seen as, you know, the girl who uses a wheelchair that uh, can't do X, Y, or Z. I was seen as the vital member of a team. Uh, I was seen as a great basketball player. Um, I was valued for that. And so for me in that respect, saying that, you know, for, for that sport made my disability a non-factor, um, in that moment, that's what it did. It just, it let me be in a space where all I needed to worry about was, was I being a great teammate? Was I training as hard as I could? Um, you know, was I, was I doing everything that I needed to be, to be great on court? Um, so that's kind of what I meant by that. And I think as I've evolved and grown and, um, just, read more and really gotten deeper into um, studying, I realized what's really important to remember about that is that 
my disability actually shaped all of those experiences and actually was a huge factor in why I felt that way. Um, so it's this really interesting sort of two sides of that coin, right? Like I felt like my disability, when I'm on court, it doesn't matter. But, you know, in the grand scheme of, you know, who I am and, and how society sees me, it plays a huge role. You know, I, I think that some people, and I would, I've learned so much from you. And, and I think that I had a different perspective of people with disability and adaptive sports before I met you. And I remember um, watching you play. And, and I, I think in my head, and I think that a lot of people are like this, they would look at somebody who is in a wheelchair and say, oh, I'm sure they're happy, but. Or they'd look mm -hmm. at somebody who plays wheelchair basketball. They say, "Oh yeah, they're 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 good at wheelchair basketball, but it's not basketball." Mm -hmm. and, I, and and I think that your perspective and being around you and watching you has made me realize that there's no there's no but there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think you know one of the things that I always sort of talk about is that whenever I read a lot of things in the media about disability sport or about myself or about my teammates or my current student athletes, it's always this uh, trope of like, they've achieved this in spite of their disability, right? Or they have achieved all of this, but they live every day with their disability. And I think that's kind of what you're getting at. It's like, you know, I'm, yeah. I, I, I don't believe that there has to be that but there, right? Like, Again, go, going back to what society has told us about disability, it's inherently bad. And it's inherently something that either you should be ashamed of or that you should be sad about. And I'm not trying to minimize the impact that disability can have on, on a person's life. But when you're surrounded by those images and those words, and when that's generally all you hear about yourself, um, you start to believe it over time, right? And so the more that we can begin to change that paradigm, whether it's through sport, or whether it's through um, education, or whether it's through really any place that we see someone with a disability achieving, it's not really that they're doing these things in spite of their disabilities, or they're doing these things, um, these wonderful things, but they must not be happy. It really is, we're doing these wonderful things uh, in spite of all of the, the ableist ideologies that have surrounded us our entire lives. And so I think when we reframe it that way, um, you know, we see that like my life, while it has its ups and downs, and, and I've certainly had things that I've gone through that have defined me and that have been challenges, but my life is no, you know, better or worse in that respect. Like it, my life is my life and I live it <laughs> and uh, the good and the bad and the, the awesome. So um, I think the more we can begin to reframe disability as something that's not inherently bad, I think the better off we're going to be moving forward. Given the, the the kids that get to you and your team in college, imagine growing up as a, a youth or a teenager and the messages that they see all around them is that but, is that you, you can't mm -hmm. do it. How do you, when they come to you, how do you help them reframe that and, and help them see what you see? Because that's, it has to be a, a real struggle, the emotional and mental part of, of disability and, and, and what these kids have been told all their lives has to be a part of what you do as a coach at the University of Illinois. 
It absolutely is. It actually is the first part of my coaching philosophy is to um, help the student athletes in our program see that they bring value to our, our world, whether it's through um, what they're going to be once they graduate here for a profession or who they are on court um, and just who they are as a person. So you're absolutely right. It is, it's number one on my list. And whenever I think about this, I think about uh, one of my student athletes a couple of years ago. Uh, she was a freshman and we're playing in our very first game of the season. And to kind of preface this and to frame it, um, a lot of our youth wheelchair basketball teams are co-ed. So there's boys and girls that play together on the same team. So our game was going on and I was getting a little bit frustrated with her because she was in positions where if her teammates would have passed the ball, she could score. But she wasn't looking for the ball. She really wasn't looking to be a scorer. And so after the game, I pulled her aside and I was like, hey, like, you're doing everything right to get yourself in position to score. Um, tell me what's going on. Like, why, why aren't you able to take that next step or why aren't you able to, to look for the ball or, you know, be in that position? She goes, well, you know, growing up, I was never valued as like an important player on the court or as a scorer. And so, like, I just, I don't even know how to put myself in that position to be successful. And that was one of those learning moments for me where it was like, okay, we have a lot more work to do than just to teach the X's and O's of basketball, which by the way, I think that's really important for any coach to understand that it's what we do is far more than the X's and O's. But I think for us teaching our student athletes that they bring value as a human being is so important. And so we just, it's a chipping away process. And sometimes it's not even done by the time they graduate with us. But it's, you know, the reinforcing of like, yes, you belong here or, you know, when they're trying something new on court, even when they fail, like to really hype them up and say, like, I'm so proud of you for showing that courage for trying that. Um, that's valuable or just anything where they are stepping out of a comfort zone or where they're doing something that they wouldn't have been able to do when they were a freshman student athlete with us. Um, anything that's outside of that comfort zone, we are celebrating the heck out of it. And then it's a lot of relationship building and I think modeling from my perspective and you know, showing them just what it looks like to show up in a world that's not really designed for you. Sometimes they don't want you to show up, um, which I think is still a struggle for all of us at times. So um, it could be they speak up on a disability related issue that they feel isn't important or that is important. And we talk about those things within our program um, just to prepare them for that. So it absolutely is number one on our list. And it, it's just chipping away at that kind of rough exterior and that hard exterior over the course of time while they're here. Obviously the, the two are different, but there's, there are similarities as you're talking that I hear with myself and being, gay that I had to kind of unlearn the, 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 um, the, the, the almost shame of being gay and the idea that my life couldn't be as good as somebody else. And, and, and I wonder if, you know, when you encounter somebody who's LGBTQ and they have a disability, does that compound the, the layers that you have to, uh, you have to peel off or, or, uh, is, 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 are they just totally separate or are they intertwined? I do think they're intertwined. Um, you know, I, I don't think you can separate out the different parts of yourself. Like I can't separate being a woman from being disabled, from being gay, from being white, like all of those 
um, experiences are intertwined and I, I can't tease those out. And so with our student athletes, um, I think it's the exact same way. Um, obviously, everyone's experience around disability and um, being a member of the LGBTQ plus community is different and they're going to bring different perspectives with that. But um, I, I think that you're exactly right. The shame that is associated um, with both of those, I think, adds that extra layer. I mean, I can speak from experience with that. And I think that's what allows me to make that connection with my student athletes when we are trying to unlearn all of these things we've been told all of our lives. Um, so absolutely, it, it, it takes a bit to chip away at that and to just show them that, you know, once they're comfortable with bringing their whole selves to what they're doing, whether it's school, basketball, their personal lives, their relationships, whatever it might be, then we start getting somewhere and, and we can really start, they can really start seeing success on and off the court. I, I've noticed, and maybe it's just because I'm more aware of, of Paralympics and adaptive sports now, but I've noticed um, more media coverage and celebration of these sports in recent years. Is that is that just me becoming more aware of them or have you noticed a shift as well? I think it's a combination of both. I think it's a, a, a kudos and a shout out to you becoming more aware. Um, but I also do think that there has been more celebration in the media. Um, I know surrounding the Rio Paralympic Games and the last Winter Paralympic Games, um, I saw more celebration from our uh, with our Paralympic athletes, whether it was through sponsorships or more media coverage, mainstream media coverage with NBC and, and showing the actual games. In this lead up to Tokyo, um, I can speak from a wheelchair basketball perspective to where we've seen um, our teams and our athletes be celebrated more with you know sponsorships with names like Toyota and Nike. Those are two that have really done a great job in this lead up of saying, we value what you bring, we value you and we value your sport. And therefore we're going to celebrate you and we're going to do everything that we can to back your success once we get to Tokyo, which has been really cool. Um, I've been around the Paralympic movement since uh, 2000. And so to see that evolution in 19 years has been pretty amazing. How, how did you get started in this sport? Uh, well, I was injured in a car accident when I was six years old. Uh, so I've had my disability um, for a bit over 30 years now. I was an active kid before I got hurt. You know, as much as you can be when you're six, right? Like playing Little League T-ball and um, Little League gymnastics and all that good stuff. But um, I was always a physical child and I always wanted to do anything I could outdoors or in a gym or with a ball. But when I sustained my injury, I lived in a really small town. Um, the town I grew up in in North Carolina only had about a thousand people. And I was one in about three or four children who had a physical disability. So there was really nowhere for me to go play sports, to be with my peers. Like I just kind of couldn't. And I wasn't really told that I could. Like my body was pretty much wrapped in bubble wrap um, for a few years. And I, so I started trying to seek out opportunities on my own, like on the playground, but nothing was just fulfilling. And one day I happened to be at Duke Hospital for um, kind of one of those yearly checkups that you have when you're a kid with a disability. And uh, the parent of another child on a wheelchair basketball team 
came over to me and said, hey, um, I see that you use a wheelchair. There's a local wheelchair basketball team here in the, the Raleigh-Durham area. Would you be interested? And like, you know, I grew up in North Carolina. My eyes got wide. And I was like, absolutely. <laughs> like, I love basketball. Like, that was my number one sport even before I played it. So um, I grew up with my grandfather. And so I pretty much begged to go to the very next basketball practice. And I'm really fortunate. I had a family that was willing to drive me two hours um, each way to a basketball practice. And literally from that moment on, I just, I fell in love. I didn't put a basketball down. All I wanted for Christmas that next year was a basketball hoop in my backyard. Um, and basketball basically became just this driving force in my life that wanted, that kind of pushed me to be great at everything else because I, I so badly wanted to play sports. So um, I started playing with a team when I was 12, um, a, just like a local youth team. And that led to me um, being recruited to play at the University of Illinois by Mike Frogley, who was the head coach here at the time. And that fortunately led to opportunities with our national team. Well, everybody, hang tight uh, for a couple of minutes and we'll be right back with more from Stephanie Wheeler. Okay, we're back with Stephanie Wheeler. Uh, Stephanie, that led to, as you said, becoming a part of the national team. And I, I've lost track. Is it four, three golds, four golds? How, <laughs> how many golds have you won? Um, I have uh, two Paralympic gold medals as a player, and I have one as a head coach. What, I, what does it <laughs> feel like? To, I mean, I, I can only imagine looking back on that podium, winning a Paralympic gold medal, and everybody has a journey they've been through, but to go through the journey that you went through, lo losing your mom in the accident, and 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 finding this sport, and and and. What was going through your head the first time you stood on that podium? I can't even imagine. Yeah, it was. It's one of those surreal moments that you. It's hard to wrap your brain around it when it's happening. I think for me, you know, as I'm hearing the national anthem go, and we're in Athens, Greece, right? Like my first Paralympics was in 2004, and that's the birthplace of the modern Olympic Games. And so you can't really get much better than that unless you're at a home Paralympic Games. Right. But. That was so special to be able to be in Athens for that moment. I'm getting goosebumps right now, actually thinking about it. Um, and, you know, the first thing that kind of the feelings that flood your mind of like for me was just all the hours I was in my backyard, just counting down, you know, like Wheeler has the ball, three seconds on the clock. Like, and, you know, you always make the game winning shot or you get fouled or something awesome happens in those moments. But just about how much time I spent out there by myself because I didn't have a team that I could practice with every single day. And so you're kind of overwhelmed with like, man, you know, I, I spent a lot of time making this happen. Ultimately, what it comes back around to is that medal and that moment is just the greatest thank you that an athlete could ever give to everybody that propped up their journey, right? And was just a, a rung on the ladder to helping them get to that top podium position. You know, my family driving me to wheelchair basketball practice, um, two hours back and forth each time I wanted to go, um, taking time away to take me to basketball tournaments. Um, 
my neighbors who like who I'm sure were annoyed at like the sound of a basketball dribbling for hours and hours and hours on end in my backyard. Um, my coaches who saw something in me that I did not see in myself at any point in time. So it's just the greatest. And then your teammates, obviously, like you get to share that moment with them, which is pretty special um, as well, because they're right there in that journey with you. And so knowing that there's been all these little pieces that have made that moment so special, it's just overwhelming and it's surreal. And, you know, leading up to that Paralympic Games, you know, I had lost my mom in a car accident. I'd also lost my grandfather um, three years prior who raised me. And so, you know, that moment, I hope that they saw and were proud of who I was and what I was doing and that, you know, the lessons they had taught me throughout my life were paying off in that moment too. So I always say it's kind of one of those once in a lifetime moments that I've been fortunate to have more than one time. Um, and that you just, sometimes you don't even hear the national anthem playing because you're so immersed in like all of these different thoughts um, going on. It's kind of hard to wrap words around it. Even now, 15 years later from that first experience, it's still sometimes hard to put words to it. When a uh, national organization is putting together a team, for a lot of sports, it's, it's, it's easy to figure out how women's soccer team, they go to professional women's soccer and the basketball, they go to professional basketball and hockey. What is the system below the Paralympics that, that feeds players? Is, is there a robust college scene? Is that where they all come from? Yeah, so there's our governing body is called the National Wheelchair Basketball Association. And there's over 200 teams that make up the NWBA. And that goes from our youngest athletes who are eight years old, all the way up through um, your juniors, youth experience, your college experience, and then moving on to your club and adult experience. So there is quite a robust system that feeds into our national team program at different levels, right? Like we have our youth national teams that a lot of times our youth and college programs feed into. And then we have our senior national teams that our collegiate programs and our club programs feed into. Um, so we do have a couple of different touch points within our governing body um, that make sure we're um, creating a great training space that is going to allow our national teams to obviously be the best they can be. And the college system is definitely one of those. I think it's the one that's most recognized because we're the, the division that tends to practice every single day. We have um, professional coaches that get to have a touch point with the student athletes every single day. So um, we do have a lot of our student athletes within our college programs that are currently playing or have played. Um, sorry, let me say that again. We have either current or former student athletes in our college system that are currently playing on the national team. Do you have a moment having been to several Olympics? Do you have a Paralympics? Sorry. Do you have a moment that, um, that sticks out as, as the one that is the most satisfying or memorable? Ooh, that's a really hard question. <laughs> no, <laughs> they're all so different. Yeah, they're all, yeah, there's thousands of them. There's thousands. But um, I think the two where I was an athlete, um, and a lot of it is just the moments that you spend in the village with your teammates um, and all those moments leading up to it. Like there's so many stories I can tell about, you know, someone, I don't know, being silly and doing this thing or all the laughs we had or 
you know, one of my teammates, we were coming out onto the court before our first game at the Paralympics in 04. And, you know, it's very ceremonial. You come out in a line, there's music playing, it, you're, you know, your nerves are buzzing, all that stuff. And she comes out, front casters hit a lip right before you get on the court and she falls. And it like causes this huge backup of all of us behind her where like we can't get onto the court. So it's little moments like that that are just like, that's what sticks out to me more than anything else. Um, as a coach, it's a little bit different because you, you you have a bond with your athletes, but it's very different than what you would um, develop if you were teammates with them. And I think the moment as a coach that I look back on where I kind of defined that experience was actually before we got to Rio, about a month and a half before we went, we were in Germany at this tournament and we beat the top two teams in the world. And we beat them because we became a cohesive team, um, really utilizing a lot of the work that they had put in with our sports psychologists and, and building relationships with one another. And once we saw that as a staff, we knew that um, we had an incredible opportunity to be at the top of the podium in Rio. So there are those, all those little moments that just make up that experience. It's like identity. It's hard to tease out, right? Like it's hard to... Yeah. Pick out which one of those are the most important or the 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 best. Though when I ask people um, about their experience at the Olympics, it it is so interesting how very often their their fondest memories are not winning something, but rather the people they met and the time they got to spend just just chatting with Kobe Bryant or mm-hmm. shaking hands with Adam Rippon. And it's just, it's just interesting that even at the, at the height of their sport, at their climax of their career, it's the people that they remember. Absolutely. And I, it's, it's hard sometimes to remember that, especially when you're a high level athlete, it, it's sometimes you don't realize that's going to be the moment that you remember. You think it's going to be that gold medal moment, that moment where, all the work that you've put in over a lifetime is going to come together in this perfect storm and, and you're going to get that medal that you've always wanted. I think that's what you're thinking of as you're training and as you're, you're going through the day to day, because that's, that's what drives you to get there. Um, so it's hard. And I didn't recognize it in those moments that it was going to be those people or relationship memories. But once you're able to step away and, and get some perspective and look at the big picture, um, that really is what it's all about. It's the people that, that have helped you get there and the people that you're privileged enough to have that experience with, whether it's your, your teammates or your coaching staff. And um, so, yeah, it's kind of amazing. And it's one of the things that in sport we just lose sight of quite often is, um, and this is at all levels of sport, that we lose sight of that it is the people and it is about the experience that we can create for the people involved, whether we're the coach or whether we're a teammate. Um, and we can we can get a little too focused on winning sometimes. So I, I try to remember that as much as I can now as a coach that like the moments that we're trying to create for our student athletes aren't moments where they win at the end of the season. It's moments of connection where they've been able to have a relationship with their teammates or a funny story with a teammate that they're going to remember long, long after whatever trophy has dust all over it on the shelf. I know that you won three Paralympic golds. You were the gold medal winning coach in Rio, but you handed the reins over to somebody else. You just get tired of winning, Stephanie? Just- <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you know what? It was, it takes a lot out of you. 
um, coaching at that highest level um, is hard. You're on all the time. And I also was still had my job here at the University of Illinois concurrently. So I was coaching a collegiate team and I was coaching the USA national team. And so, and I had actually just gotten into a relationship with my current partner, Laura, at the time. And so there was a lot going on uh, with that. And what I realized over the course of that process is that, you know, one, when I look at it from a job perspective, I love coaching college basketball. I just love it. And I love that you get to be with those student athletes every single day at such a critical point in their lives where they're really discovering who they're meant to be and, and who they're going to be. Um, and they're really discovering how to become that. And that's just such a, a privileged opportunity that I get to be a part of their lives at that moment. And I felt like at that point in time, I wasn't able to be there fully present for all of those moments. Um, and that was, that was hard. Um, you know, the other piece, I felt the same way about my relationship and my partner, Laura, like I couldn't be around for all of those special moments that I wanted to be around for and the development of a relationship. And so when it boiled down to it, I loved the time with the national team and I wouldn't trade that for anything in the world. And I learned so much, but at the end of the day, my passion lied in working with those collegiate student athletes um, every single day. And I knew that in order to be my best at that, um, I had to be a, a one job kind of girl at that point in time. And in order to be a great partner, I needed to invest more time. Does coaching at the collegiate level put a strain on your relationship? I don't think the, that it's necessarily the coaching. It's, you know, we have a tough schedule and our schedule requires us to be, it's not a nine to five where I can come into work at a set time every day and leave at a set time. You know, we're on all the time because we're, we're that second family to our student athletes while they're here. And so their lives don't stop at 4 PM. And so unfortunately our jobs don't stop at 4 PM. And I think for me, what I had to learn and you know, that I still learn is just that open communication about what my job requires. Um, and then how I, when I'm home, how I need to be present and how, um, I need to make sure that I'm doing the things to strengthen my relationship and to be a great partner. And, you know, I forget sometimes and I, I don't do it perfectly. Um, but it's one of those things where, you know, we've had to work on our communication. I've had to work on my communication and just ensuring that I'm doing what I can to be present while we're together. Um, and then, you know, when I travel, I can focus on my team and focus on what we have to do. So I think coaching is a hard profession. And I think that coaches, partners, and spouses are incredible understanding people <laughs> who, um, you know, have to share their spouse at times with a team and a group of people. When I was trying to decide whether I wanted to get into coaching or officiating, uh, it was the time factor that was the deciding mm -hmm. factor. It was, I simply could not, as I learned what coaching really was, put in the time to succeed. So I'm always impressed by the people who are able and willing to do that. Yeah, it's um it's it's definitely one of those professions where again, you just have to know that you're on a lot and when your student athletes need you, 
they need you. And it's hard to say like, oh, I can't be there for you at this moment in time and tell them that you really care about them, right? Like the, the time is there with the student athletes, the recruiting piece, the scouting piece, the travel piece, like all of it, all of it requires time. Well, Stephanie, I, I uh, you know, like I said, I've learned so much from you and, and so proud of all of your unbelievable accomplishments. I end every podcast asking the athlete the same two questions. So I'm going to ask you these two questions. Okay. Um, one, who is Paralympian who has inspired you? Ooh, that's a great question. It's a challenging question because when I was growing up, um, there was a lack of visibility of, of Paralympic athletes and Paralympic idols out there. But I would say the one person that was visible to me growing up, I had a poster of her in my bedroom. Her name is Jean Driscoll, and she's actually an alumni of the University of Illinois. Um, she was a track and road racing athlete, and she was one of the first people in a wheelchair I ever saw compete at a really high level. Um, so. I looked up to her and just saw that, okay, she could achieve at a really high level, then that opportunity is there for me. I would say the other person, um, her name is Deb Sunderman, and she is um, a former USA national team coach with wheelchair basketball. Um, and she's also um, in the LGBTQ plus community. And again, someone that I could look to, I was a pretty young player at the time and I saw her and I was like, man, like that, she's someone who, is in a position that I think is really cool. And um, I just felt the connection to her and, and felt seen by her too. So I would say those are the two people that I look, was inspired by and then continued to be inspired by, the two of them. And you know what? I'm sure 90% of the people listening have never heard of either. So I appreciate you no. uh, <laughs> introducing though, people to this. People need to learn about their history. Absolutely. Um, and they're two incredible athletes, absolutely incredible athletes and, and people. And uh, well, I know Jean Driscoll has won like 87 medals. Um, oh, yeah. she's She's got some like enormous number of medals is in the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Hall of Fame. But I think just more important than anything, she's a Hall of Fame person. So um, I'm really lucky to have had some opportunities to interact with her here at Illinois. The other question, and this is a bit of a trick question for some people. Okay. Um, the name of the podcast comes from a line in Lord of the Rings. Are you a Lord of the Rings fan at all? Oh, I am not. I have not been able to get into Lord of the Rings. All right, fine. You get a pass on. on <laughs> I'm one of those few people. No, no. Well, it's, 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 most people are, but a few aren't. But I always, I always like to end with that just because it's a little nod to I, the reason I do this podcast. I was a huge Olympics fan as a kid. And I was a huge Lord of the Rings fan. So it's kind of like a fun little perfect YouTube fandoms. Well, again, Stephanie, thank you so much for taking the time. And uh, I know you will do a great job in, in helping guide Team USA as, as well as you can from the NGB. Uh, to, uh, to awesome. success in Tokyo. You better anyway. Hey, that's the plan, right? Like you always want to see those teams on top of the podium at the end. So anything that we can do to help make them successful, that's all we can ask. Yeah, well, go Team USA. And thanks a lot, Stephanie. Thanks, Sid. I really appreciated it. You can follow Stephanie Wheeler on Twitter at StephWheeler10. And I hope you'll be paying attention to 
the Paralympics as they take shape, as Team USA takes shape. They really are an incredible set of sports. Some of them are adapted from able-bodied sports and some are totally different sports themselves like goalball. So I hope you'll pay attention to them. They're, these are incredible athletes and with unbelievable stories. And as Charlie Cullen Walters said last week, they're often more interesting than most of the other sports that you could get to watch. So anyhow, best of luck to Stephanie Wheeler and come back next week for more conversation with LGBTQ people in and around the Olympics and Paralympics. Talk to you then. <laughs>